Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, the third section of the Catechism, as we know, is titled Gratitude. Uh, it's entitled Gratitude because this is trying to make a very important point for us. It's not subtle by any means. That the Catechism wants us to understand we do not live our lives to add to the work of Christ in a meritorious way. So what that means is we're not living our lives to try and finish or complete Christ's work. We're not doing works uh, to earn our way into heaven. That's simply what the Catechism is uh, teaching us. So when it says gratitude, it wants us to understand we're doing this um, to bring forth fruits of our faith out of joy for who we are in Christ. So now remember when we talked about Christian liberty and we looked at Ephesians 5 verse 10 uh, last time where the Apostle Paul exhorts us to try and discern what is pleasing unto the Lord. This is testing what is right and wrong, uh, testing what is honorable unto God, uh, looking within ourselves as to what's not consistent with his will uh, and what needs to be brought in line with his will. And so I thought it would be helpful to go back and think about idolatry and how the Apostle Paul defines it here in this passage, uh, because it's rather broad. Uh, so often we can think of idolatry as having a Buddha or a Baal or having something that's an explicit idol that we worship in the place of God. And so uh, we can look at the first commandment, check the box and say, we're doing pretty well. You know, we don't struggle with this because uh, we don't literally have a Buddha in our front yard or in our house that we're bowing down to. And the Apostle Paul makes us very broad in the sense that he invites us to understand that idolatry is a little more challenging uh, than just not literally having idols in our lives. And so what is idolatry? And even as a catechism is laying out idolatry, it's, it's a pretty broad issue when we look at this. So when we look at this, we'll see, okay, first, what is the obedience the catechism's calling us to do? So just generally, what does the catechism really want us to do in terms of its instruction for obedience? And secondly, what is idolatry? How does the catechism fundamentally define it? And so generally, as I mentioned, question answer 92 basically goes through our division of the Ten Commandments. But going on in 93 and 94, the Catechism begins to tell us what we are to avoid in terms of idolatry. So idolatry, generally, obviously, that's a good thing to avoid. Uh, this is telling us that we trust in anything other than God. Pretty broad statement. Basically, any place where we have contentment, joy, other than the Lord is idolatry. Uh, so that's pretty broad. Sorcery gets a little more specific. This is basically uh, trying to dabble in the spiritual realms. This would fall 
under the realm of, say, witchcraft or trying to uh, channel demons or maybe angels uh, to sort of uh, manipulate them to do our tasks. So we're trying to figure out different spells, different formulas in the way in which we can manipulate the spiritual realm. So the catechism saying, obviously, we're, we're trying to make ourselves above God. Uh, this would be idolatry. Superstitious rites. This is where we begin uh, to have those superstitious uh, traditions that we may have where we say, you know, if we don't do X, Y, and Z, uh, then bad things are going to happen. So we need to follow uh, these proper protocols. Now, this isn't, you know, obviously doing wise checks or whatever. That's not superstitious. I know, like maybe a lucky hat or having lucky shoes or something like that we can fall into. Now, it's not limited to that. But basically, it's trusting in anything that as we follow the protocol or have a particular item, uh, we are those who are trusting in something other than God. We're saying that these rites will end to literal blessing. And as I follow this protocol, then I will receive literal blessing and the gods will be on my side. Prayer to the saints. Uh, this is interacting with what our tradition comes out of, with Roman Catholicism, which uh, the Roman Catholics still do this practice. Uh, some Roman Catholics might go to the explicit extreme of saying God the Father is so busy, uh, he needs more particular reminders. Now, not every Roman Catholic would put it in those terms, but what Roman Catholics would generally say, if you go to the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia or other online resources that Roman Catholics uh, would see as authoritative, they would say that you pray to the dead saints who are in heaven because they're in the presence of God. And so if they're in the presence of God, they can simply take your request, walk it over to God, and, and therefore God will have your request as a higher priority. So when, when you put it this way, I mean that the fundamental assumption behind this is God is too busy to hear our prayers. Uh, so we have to question whether or not, if we're engaging in this practice, if we believe that God is really sovereign. Uh, we're kind of casting an, an image of ourselves on God and assuming uh, that God has a huge to-do list and, and he's going to drop the ball if we don't remind him. And it's important, as the catechism's reminding us, God's sovereign. He knows all things. He actually knows what we need even before we ask of him. Uh, so we, we shouldn't be seeing prayer as something that's going to get in the way or sort of upset our Father in heaven. And we certainly don't need the saints in heaven uh, to try and bring a request over to God. In fact, there's really no evidence in Scripture that the saints in heaven could even hear our prayers as we see the saints under the altar in Revelation, uh, where it seems even those saints are, are unaware of when Christ is coming again, and they themselves are bringing their own personal requests to God, aren't they? They're saying, how long? How long till uh, you make everything right and you avenge us? Uh, so even those saints are not so much concerned about our affairs on this earth as they are so much about the Lord bringing this world into its consummate glory or, or the end of the age, uh, final judgment, new heavens, new earth, however you want to say that. So getting at the apostle, or continuing on with the catechism says even more explicitly, 
And I love the language that the catechism uses. I almost skipped over this, and it's an important point. But it said, I know the true God. This is important, because the knowledge in terms of what this is calling to our attention is not just having a proper doctrine of God. Well, that's part of it. We want to have a very clear and good doctrine of God, no, no doubt. But knowing God is more in the, the Hebrew sense, in the sense of not only knowing something in, in our minds, but knowing it in terms of our experience. So we want to know God in the sense that we truly live our lives before the face of God, knowing that he is our redeemer, he is our deliverer, he is our provider, he is the one who truly orders our steps. In other words, the whole, our whole lives, we live before the face of God, believing he is the only true God who gives us contentment and that we're not trying to put something in the way or in the place of him, which we are prone to do. And notice then that the catechism makes this even more explicitly. Not only that we know the true God, but that we are those who wait upon the Lord for every good thing, humbly, patiently. Notice the language that's used here. With love and fear and honor him as my Lord. And so the catechism is, is reminding us at the very heart of, of where we struggle, isn't it? Uh, we, we struggle with waiting upon the Lord. Uh, we, we struggle with resting in, in the things of this age that are tangible, that we can see, uh, that, that truly uh, take care of us in terms of our minds. Now again, it's not uh, something where the Lord doesn't use means, but the, the place where the catechism is reminding us is we don't trust in the means that God uses. We trust in the Lord to give us the means that we need to get through our day-to-day -day life. And that's what the catechism wants us to see as a forefront in terms of just generally what it means to, to be obedient unto God and to not fall into idolatry. We wait upon the Lord in every aspect of our lives, trusting him to be the great provider. And so this is where I wanted to turn back to Ephesians 5 and to the Apostle Paul, where there is that reminder that, that there's that, that exhortation as we looked at last time, <clears throat> to try to discern what is pleasing unto the Lord. I, I wanted to build on this. Because remember when we talked about Christian liberty, we said Christian liberty is, is my freedom and your freedom to live out the gospel, right? So it, it means within the boundaries of what God has explicitly said, we're living out the gospel, putting off where we struggle, being aware of where we are prone to wander, and living before the face of God responsibly. My struggle's not your struggle. Your struggle's not my struggle. And so it's an understanding that my priority is for me to live my faith, my life before the face of God, and to see what distracts me from him. And so when, when we think about the book of Ephesians in this letter, it's still one of those things where, where I... I I wrestle with, with why the Apostle Paul explicitly wrote this letter. You know, what, what's the fundamental uh, sort of thesis statement to it? So there's a lot of things you could say. I mean, some say it's just love, but there's more to it than just love. I mean, that's certainly part of it. But what you have in, in Ephesians that, that I really appreciate in how the Apostle Paul writes this letter, it very explicitly starts with God. 
right? So Ephesians 1, we understand that it's God in heaven who calls his people. He's chosen us before the foundations of the world. He's preserving us for a foundation. He's given or for an eternal inheritance. He's given us the down payment in his Holy Spirit. So you have this strong language in, in the opening of Ephesians where all of this is beginning with God. Ephesians 2, where we are those who are sinners and, and wretches, enemies of God, and he takes us and he gives us new life and he seats us with Christ Jesus, gifting us the faith that we have. And so it's just that humbling reminder of God working from eternity, applying his blessings in history, and we become conscious of this. Ephesians 3, reminding us of the mystery of God and his intention that the Gentiles would be brought into the one temple building that God's building. Ephesians 4, beginning to exhort us in terms of how we live this out. And Ephesians 5 continues with exhortations as to how we live. And so when, when we put this in the context, you know, some people speculate, and it's, it's possible, maybe likely, but we don't know for sure, just looking at the argument, how Paul develops it, and there may be some sort of pre-Gnostic philosophy going on here. And what that simply means is that there's people that are saying, oh, what you do in the flesh doesn't really matter. It's just the spirit. So, you know, if you want to gratify the flesh, great. If you don't want to gratify the flesh, great. Because the flesh doesn't matter. And, and, and God, you know, you just want to encounter him somehow. And there are certain um, things that you do to encounter God. And so it seems that might be part of the backdrop of what Paul is reminding us. With, with this reminder that physical fleshly sins are a problem. Uh, sins that, that we commit in the heart are a problem. And so it's not that the Apostle Paul, when we look at this list in Ephesians 5, is saying, you know, the sexual immorality or these other sorts of sins are the worst sins ever, because right there in verse 3, he mentions covetousness, right? And so right, right there, you have sort of a physical sin combined with a, a mental or, or sin that's sort of conceived within us that then we act out. And so the Apostle Paul is telling us that, that all these things are, are things that, that we need to keep in check. Go back to verse 10, discerning what is pleasing unto God, understanding who we are as we are prone to wander. And so as God works within us, we have the assurance that as we live out our lives, that, that the Lord is truly going to bring about his purpose, and we need to live in the confidence of this. Now remember that, that where we started in 5 verse 1 with the ultimate standard, we are to be imitators of God. Now this is a pretty strong statement because this is basically saying that our priority, our role model, is not other spiritual fathers in the faith. And, and it's sort of interesting that Paul would use this exhortation because he'll say to Corinth, follow my example, right? And, and so it's, it's Paul calling himself as saying, here I am as a sojourner, follow how I sojourn. But here in Ephesians 5, I think this gives credibility to sort of having this, this false teaching come in. Being imitators of God, that's an important thing. Not only is it a reminder as to the standard, but it's that wonderful 
exhortation for us to understand we can know God. And, and, and so let that sink in, that there is not some unknowable mystery that dwells beyond our comprehension. When we're called to be imitators of God, it means that we understand his desires for us. And so we're, we're starting to get at the understanding of idolatry, aren't we? Because really, if you want to define idolatry and what it means to obey, it means fundamentally we want to emulate God as our first priority. But idolatry is in our desires or our will standing in the way of God. So you think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? They, they want the tree, and it's pleasing to their eye. So it's us in terms of deciding this is what I think is right. I'm standing in the place of God. This is what's going to give me satisfaction. And that's basically what sin is doing. It's a self-deception in thinking that this sin that I commit will give me immediate gratification over living for the pure, purity and, and joy of the Lord. And so when the Apostle Paul goes through this list, uh, going down now, verse 3, the sexual morality and purity, this is dealing with physical uh, immorality, but the language of impurity um, is a language of where you have basically in the Old Testament, uh, you can have you know, the prophets rebuking Israel for committing spiritual uh, adultery, you know, basically pursuing other gods. That's the force here. So right here in the context, the Apostle Paul is saying basically any desire that you think is going to give you joy apart from what God has commanded is idolatrous. You're, you're setting yourself up in the place of God. You're making yourself God in the place of the true God. And so the Apostle Paul wants us to know that. This covetousness is a language of, basically, it's, it's extreme selfishness. Um, it's something, obviously, as fallen creatures we struggle with. But it's basically, I'm going to do what I want to do, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence, no matter who gets harmed. Uh, that's the force of this. And so Paul's saying this is not something we, we should obviously be doing. Uh, this is not consistent for us. But notice then in verse 3 where he gives us the motivation again or the reminder of who we are as is proper among saints. This is what I love about Paul's writings that he sort of reminds you, invites you to do a little bit of introspection. He says, oh, now remember, you're saints set apart unto Christ. So I'm not kicking you out of the kingdom. I, I just want you to think about your life in terms of who you are as a saint, as one secured by the living God. He goes on then in his list where he talks about filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. This is basically any talk that's intended to minimize, uh, cut down, uh, deprecate. Uh, it's even talk that could include what, what we'd say speculative theology uh, where people look at this and say this is where it could be sort of this pre-Gnostic system uh, where you start asking questions of Scripture that Scripture doesn't answer. You know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Uh, is God so big that he can create a, a stone that, that he cannot lift? You know, those sorts of things. Um, things that we, we should really look at who God is, how he defines himself, and desire to submit to our Lord 
rather than trying to redefine him as we want to define him. Now, that becomes idolatrous as well, doesn't it? Uh, because we're starting to say who God is on our terms rather than allowing the Lord to define who he is. Uh, the crude joking is basically any joking in a very general sense. It's a broad term. Uh, jokes that are intended to harm someone or deprecate or degrade anything that is good and created by God. So again, this is a very broad uh, statement, a very broad declaration of what the Apostle Paul is reminding us. So basically, up to this point, in a general sense, we say, what does it mean uh, to obey God? In a general sense, it means we want to discern living in the context of what the Lord has required of us. We, we, we want to learn and, and, and know his requirements for us. We want to live within those boundaries. Uh, we understand there's freedom, that the law of God isn't explicit in terms of how many meals you can eat or how many miles you can drive or things like that. But it's understanding why do we do what we do is, is a general reminder here. And so we have to be tuned in to the Lord's purpose, understanding we are prone uh, to redefining God and redefining what's right and wrong. Going on then, getting explicit about idolatry, question answer 95. So what is idolatry? Well, the catechism tells us it's having or inventing something. So this can be a literal idol. I mean, we can have a literal idol, a literal image, whatever that we actually worship in the place of God. That's obviously part of this commandment. So the catechism wants us to, to remember that this isn't some fancy talk where we explain away idolatry. Idolatry can actually have an idol, a physical idol that we worship. That's obviously problematic. But it goes on to speak of uh, something else where we have it either in the place of or alongside of. Now, this is where the command starts to, to hit home. Because we might say, well, it's not in the place of God, right? It's not in the place of God. I mean, God's still here, but, you know, I got a few other things I trust in. What's the big deal? Or a few other things that keep me content besides the Lord. And this is where the catechism says, actually, if you have those things alongside of God, you're saying God's not the only true God. And so if God's not the only true God, you're, you are worshiping other gods, and that's not an option. Because you have to remember with Israel, in terms of their worship, they didn't just say, oh, we're just going to worship the Baals, or we're just going to worship the Asherahs, right? I mean, some of them, they were exclusively committed to that, but others were, well, we're going to have the true God who delivered us out of the Exodus, but you know what? It's not a bad idea to keep Baal happy. Maybe we want to cover our bases there. Asherah, probably want to cover our bases there. We want to make sure that, that what we're doing and trusting in is good, but I still worship God higher than the other ones. And so this is what the catechism's addressing, how we as humans uh, don't always try to discern what's pleasing unto the Lord. Uh, we, we want to have our own affections. We want to have our own definitions. We, we want to try and determine what is right and wrong for ourselves and what is pleasing to our eyes in the place of what God has done. This is where I think Psalm 119, again, is just a wonderful 
reminder of, of a prayer of sanctification, of continually asking God, keep me on the path of righteousness. May not go left, may not go right. Keep me on the path of righteousness. In other words, may, may I not trust in myself too much and, and my own uh, wisdom. May I not get carried off in, in other thinking that's deviant from you. Keep me on your path. And it's a reminder of just asking the Lord to, to write this upon us, understanding our own need uh, for God's wisdom. And so then what is Paul saying about idolatry in terms of going on here in Ephesians 5, where he says in verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ and God. So you think about that, that declaration. And we understand that, that we are those who, who are prone to wander. Uh, we can think of the Old Testament saints and how they were prone to wander. And that language in verse 5 be, becomes rather troubling when, when you think about the consequence of this. No inheritance in the Lord's kingdom. This is where we might wonder, well, how, how do I know if I'm in or not? Especially when the standard in verse 5 is a call for us to be imitators of God. Well, I think we, we struggle with perfectly following God and living in perfect conformity with his will. I'm not saying this as an excuse. I mean, Abram himself in Genesis 15, when he has the animals cut in half, he expects the Lord to tell him to walk. He's terrified staring into hell, knowing he's not going to make it. When we find Genesis 16, he stumbles. And so we, we hear this, and we have the Apostle Paul give this exhortation. Obviously, this is inspired. We, we can't explain it away. This is in the Scriptures. So what does the Apostle Paul mean? Well, first of all, in terms of the no inheritance, what, what upsets Christ? Well, if you take this in terms of what we learned in Ephesians 5.10, discerning what is pleasing unto the Lord. We know what makes us tick. And this is what the Apostle Paul is inviting us to do. Know what makes you tick. And so when you have Christ interacting with the Israelites, what, what is his frustration? Well, they're hypocrites. And hypocrisy is play acting. So it's not just, you know, I, I'm one who's a Christian, but sometimes I stumble or I struggle. That, that's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, as the Apostle Paul and, and well, as Christ rebukes it, is where someone says, I am totally part of this community. I love this community. I love Christ, knowing full well they're just acting the part but have no desire to conform to Christ. That's what the nature of, a, of, of hypocrisy is. So when the Apostle Paul is writing this, He's saying to the Ephesian church, if these false teachers are coming in, whoever they are, and whatever false teaching we may have ourselves, which is why I think a lot of these letters, we, we don't know exactly who Paul is interacting with because then it becomes too easy to say, well, I don't struggle with that philosophy, so I'm good. Whereas I think the Apostle Paul wants us to understand this, this goes beyond the immediate context and comes to us. And so the, the call is, for us to think, okay, what in my life is covetous or idolatrous? 
What is being put in the place of God? Well, when we have this warning of hypocrisy and this warning of, of being put out of the kingdom of God, it can make us a little uneasy. We have Christ also saying, Away from me, I never knew you in Matthew 7. But what does Christ go on to say? How do we know if we have Christ? Well, Christ gives a general call to the gospel in Matthew 11. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, in the context of this, he praises the Father for revealing these things to us, much like how Paul starts in, in his letter, reminding us that the Lord will uh, demonstrate his, his revelation. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. So what's the call there? The call is for us to discern where the yoke of Christ has to be placed upon us. And hopefully kids in catechism know what that means. It means a yoke that controls the animals, that keeps them in check, and that um, mounts them together is a yoke we're placing upon ourselves. What are we saying? I want to be under the authority of Christ. I want Christ to rule over me. That's the fundamental mindset the Apostle Paul is exhorting us to have. So as we go on and we start looking at what this uh, idolatry is and this covetousness, well, it's this absolute ambition of wanting to basically do everything on our own terms in the place of God. I mean, isn't this satanic at its very core? Trying to undermine the very purpose of God. I mean, this is a pretty deep dark thing, uh, that this is something that uh, hopefully is not like a Hebrews 6 situation where the Lord says, you know, uh, they departed and, and they're not those who will ever be renewed unto repentance. And so when, when the Apostle Paul writes this, it, it is intended for us to think within ourselves and think, okay, what are my priorities? What needs to be brought in line with God? And keep in mind, idolatry can even be very fine things, very good things. Yet we can look to those things to give us contentment in the place of God. We can look to those things to define us in the place of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul is reminding us, to understand that our, our contentment, our joy, needs to be found in our Lord exclusively. We need to define right and wrong as our Lord defines right and wrong exclusively. So in Ephesians 5 verse 10, when the Apostle Paul goes on to say, try to discern what's pleasing unto the Lord. Someone who's truly a consistent idolater doesn't care about that. It's not a concern of, I want to please the Lord. And yeah, I struggle in these areas, and these areas need to be brought in line with Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, well, continue to bring those areas in line with Christ as you walk in the Spirit by faith. Don't trust in those other things, because anything else, whether it's, it's good or, or even evil, hopefully it's not evil, but even good things can be idols. The Apostle Paul is saying, don't trust in those things to bring you the true contentment. And so when we get back up to verse 5, and we say, but I still wonder about that has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Well, I think it goes back to the reality. If that statement bothers you, then that means you're in. Because somebody who's truly an idolater, meaning no tenderness to God, truly is given over to such ambition uh, that pleasing the Lord means nothing, well, then that person isn't going to care if they lost the kingdom of God. Because such a person would be so hardened in their sin that, that they'd say, well, who cares? Kingdom of God, who, who needs it? I don't need it, right? And so that's what the Apostle Paul is, is basically calling us to evaluate ourselves because we are prone. We find in judges again and again, and they did what was pleasing in their eye. Doesn't mean that they're all necessarily apostate, but they're definitely going in a very bad, dangerous direction. And so the Apostle Paul is calling us to say, evaluate yourselves. Think about what's giving you joy, what's giving you contentment. And place yourself in the context of the redemptive mercy of God. And ask yourself, what is the kingdom of God? What does this kingdom fundamentally mean to me? What does it mean that I am one who is redeemed in Christ Jesus? Because as we put this all together and we understand that we are prone to wander, we're prone to struggle, that when the Apostle Paul exhorts us to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, I want to return to this. Because this discerning isn't just a rational testing in the sense that we just do a spreadsheet theology, you know, try and figure out this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. The discerning is something we're doing in the Spirit. So when the Apostle Paul writes this, he's writing this to us as children of the light, children who are walking in the Spirit, reminding us that not all is lost. And he's exhorting us to, to continue to seek the Lord and to do what is honorable unto the living God. We're walking in the power of the Spirit. We're walking as people who are united with Christ, seated with Christ, People who are Gentiles brought into the New Testament temple. And so when we turn to Ephesians 5, we, we have to recall all that theology that has gone before us. You are a child of God. Live unto the Lord. Understand that the Lord himself will give you your contentment, your joy. Believe it. Live in the conviction of it, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. And where you're prone to wander where you're prone to find joy in something other than God, whether it's in the place of him, hopefully not, or at least alongside of him, understand you're prone to wander in those points. You know, one of the ways uh, Tim Keller, not saying I like everything about Tim Keller uh, before you storm the pulpit, uh, but one of the things Tim Keller says about idolatry is he says that if you want to know what your idols are or, or what's your potential idols, where does your mind go when you daydream? What, what, what do you think about? You know, what, what sort of things do you think, well, if I can get away and do this? He says, those are your potential idols. Now, it's not to say everything there is necessarily wrong and sinful. But it's understanding just sort of being tender to those places and saying, these are the things that can potentially call me away from God. I need to be aware of this. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying to us. Be aware of those things that, that can potentially call you away from God. Those things where you may find more joy than your Lord. Now, it's not to say 
put all those things away, and, and maybe it is. I, I, I don't know. Uh, that's up to you to decide in terms of your discerning what's pleasing unto God. But understand these things are potentially a problem. And so keep it in check. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Keep it in check. As you walk in Christ, you walk in his wisdom, keep these things in check. Now in conclusion, when we ask then, what is idolatry? Well, simply stating, it's trusting in anything other than God. It's, it's looking to anything other than the Lord to give us joy and contentment. As a reminder, the Catechism tells us it's not always necessarily in the place of God. Sometimes it's alongside of God. It's where we're tempted to do what's pleasing in our own eyes and not by the wisdom of God. But we still have to put this into context. And so what are the things that the Apostle Paul has reminded us in chapter 5? Well, verse 1, we are beloved children, adopted heirs, as we're called to be imitators of God, why? He is our Father. He is our Redeemer. We are beloved children. So the Apostle Paul isn't just beating us down. He wants to understand, you are beloved children of God. We're also loved by Christ. Verse 2, he is the one who gave himself for us. He is our sacrifice. We, have, we are saints. Verse 3, the reminder that we are the holy ones set apart unto God by his grace and mercy. Verse 8, children of light. And so when you put all this in the context, the Apostle Paul is saying, you can discern what's pleasing unto the Lord. Be tender to his purpose. Walk with a consciousness of wanting to honor him. And understand that as we sojourn through this age, we're prone to wander. We're prone to find our contentment in things other than our Lord. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, find your contentment in the God of your redemption. Worship him exclusively. He truly will fill your needs. He truly will give you the joy in this age. Believe it and walk in light of it as those who have been redeemed in God, as his beloved children. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.